0: Um, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Chris says, uh, I'm James. I'm the Associate Vicar here, uh, and I add my warm welcome to you as well. It's great to have you here. If it's for the first time, for the thousandth time, you're very welcome. Um, and this morning, we're going to read from Genesis 15, uh, which is on page 15 of the Red Bibles at the back, if you want to look at it that way. If you've got your own, I've no idea, but it's also going to be on the screen. Genesis 15, the Lord's covenant with Abraham. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? Then Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age." In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the wadi of Egypt and the great river, the Euphrates, The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. It is indeed the word of the Lord. Uh, And this morning um, I want to talk a little bit about faith. Uh, And you probably agree with me to some degree that everybody has a certain amount of faith in their life whether you're a Christian or not, who drove here this morning? Out of interest. I'm not going to shame you for driving, but um, I'm guessing you're trusting the wheels are not going to fall off on your car. You have a certain amount of faith, uh, and hopefully that the other drivers won't bash into you. There's a certain amount of faith going on there. Anybody cycle here this morning? I thought there'd be more because it's Cambridge, but there we go. Um, and I suppose it's the same with cyclists. Um, I can remember riding my old, uh, to my old church before I came here on my bike uh, and on arrival realising that my front wheel was only held on by my body weight uh, all the way there. So I had a, a certain, amount of, um, certain amount of faith about that. Um, and I don't ride my bike anymore <laughs> after that. It was slightly scary. Uh, we have faith, don't we, that the coffee afterwards, no one's poisoned it. It's faith, we don't know, but it's faith. No one's poisoned the coffee we'll drink after the service. I really want to clock how many people don't have coffee after this now. Uh, we have faith, don't we, that our alarm will go off in the morning. Um, my, Lily, my 13-month-year-old, not one-year-old, got that wrong, 13-month-year-old is my alarm, and anybody with children probably has the same. Uh, and I have no problem in having faith that that alarm will go off in the morning. I have absolute faith. Um, But I've always had a fundamental mistrust of iPhones when it comes to the changing of the clocks, that it will actually do it for me, and my alarm will go off. Does anybody else have that, or is it just me not trusting Apple? Uh, There you go, a few nods, wonderful, not just me. Atheists, They they have quite a large amount of faith that there is no God, don't they? Maybe they wouldn't call it faith, but I'd call that faith. And there's probably many other examples, but all people have faith um, in many ways, and most people's lives are built around some kind of faith uh, in something, every day or bigger. In this passage we see today some key elements that underpin what the Christian faith looks like, what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to live a life of faith. And this series uh, we're in the middle of uh, is called The Big Story. The story of God, creation, his people from creation to kingdom come. Uh, The full story of God and his people. And as as we get a a view on the big story of God, we begin to have a richer understanding of who God is, um, yes, but also his heart for us and for the world around us. Not just Cambridge, but but further as well. We get to see that his heart is really uh, for all people as we look at this. Um, and ultimately how we get to live as people of faith. So I've already read the passage. Um, We're looking at Genesis 15 uh, of Abraham and Sarai. Uh, And in Hebrews 11, Abraham, which is his name uh, that he receives a little bit later in Genesis, is listed as one of the great people of faith in the story of God. So he's a good person to look at when it comes to faith. I'm sure you'd agree. But the background to this point in Genesis 15 is that it follows a big battle between between him and those allied with him and a notorious Middle Eastern warlord at the time who is then defeated in battle but is not killed. So Abraham and his family had this ongoing threat in the background uh, that this guy was going to come and basically destroy them, come and kill them at some point. Uh, And the enemy, this this warlord, was like a rampaging army that would loot cities and enslave the people. They'd kill many of the men and take many of the women for their own. So there's quite a threat going on around him at this point. I don't quite know what the equivalent is for us today. But anyway, he comes back from beating them in battle, but not quite killing the main guy yet. Uh, And as well as this, it's been at least 10 years since Abram entered the Promised Land and heard God tell him at least three times he was going to have an heir... A son, who would be his heir. But so far, none of God's promises had come to pass. He's still in the waiting game. Has anybody ever been in the waiting game before? Maybe quite, not for quite as long as Abraham was. But maybe you've been in the waiting game. Maybe you have some kind of feeling about that. But there was no child. And Abraham faced a present threat with that warlord going round pillaging villages, and a future without hope for his people. And it was in this situation, knowing how Abraham felt, that we read the first verse one, and I love it. The first thing is, do not be afraid, Abraham. And the first thing this passage shows us about the Christian faith, what it means to show a Christian faith, is that the Christian faith is shown when we don't allow fear to control our lives. Christian faith is shown when we don't allow fear to control our lives. And it's interesting how often God says to people in the Bible, do not fear. I often associate it with the Christmas passages with the angels, do not fear. But it's actually a lot, a lot more wide than that, a lot, uh, said a lot more widely. Um, one person counted up the number of commands that Jesus gives, even in the Gospels. Uh, and they said that there are 125 imperatives in the Gospels from the mouth of Jesus, 125 different commands from Jesus. The number one theme of Jesus' commands, in some variation, is do not be afraid, fear not, have courage. And he says this 21 times. And the next closest command is eight times, and that's a love your neighbor theme. And which one do you hear more spoken about? Love your neighbor or do not fear. It struck me that I probably would say that love your neighbour would be said more than do not fear from Jesus' mouth. But fear, I'm sure we probably all know, is a big deal. I don't have to preach that message to you. Fear is a big deal. And people fear different things. Some people hate flying. Other people hate bananas, whatever it may be. But I believe ultimately we all have one fear to greater or lesser degree. And that. Is fully surrendering, fully surrendering our lives to Christ. Maybe you believe Christianity is true, Jesus is who he says he is, but still somehow we're trying to keep control of some areas. If we're in control of some areas, maybe we haven't fully surrendered. Matthew 10 says this. This is the go-to passage. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is hardcore. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Christian faith is shown when we don't allow fear to control our lives, and we fully surrender our lives to Christ. So the first question for us all, have I, have you fully surrendered your life to Christ? at this present time. The second thing is this. Christian faith is is shown, is seen, when we rely on God's protection. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And God, as our shield, is mentioned again many times in the Bible. Uh, This is the first time. Uh, And there are many names that God gives himself to communicate to us that he is our protector. He's our dwelling place, our fortress, our hiding place, our high tower, our keeper, the lifter of my head, my strength, my refuge, my rock, my shelter, my shield, my stronghold, etc. Where do you turn for your protection? Where do I turn for my protection? Where do we turn to find safety and security? What is it that we really rely on as our shield, maybe to keep us safe? Maybe to keep our families safe? Who is our shield? The Bible regularly warns us not to put our ultimate trust or confidence in anything or anyone other than in God. So what might we put our trust in other than God? Hard question, isn't it? when you begin to go through everything. I was at um, the Strawberry Fair yesterday. Uh, I went down, never been before. I wore the wrong clothes because it was really hot and I was really sweaty for the entire time, just so you know. Um, But um, walking around there... uh, you know, There's all sorts going on there, there's live music, there's various different stalls. there's loads of good food, so it smells incredible. Um, but as, even as I walked from the entrance to where our friends were, I walked past a witch uh, with her staff in the ground uh, muttering curses over people. I walked past a tarot reading card section on one side, and a bit further down there was a, a fortune teller who was telling people's fortunes. A little bit later on we were walking to see our friend's band uh, and a warlord was stood with his staff in the ground muttering curses over everybody that walked past him. And I just thought, I'll just pray. You know, God's bigger, right? And so I just started praying. What I realised I did as I walked past this particular guy is I was like this. (laughs) Just walking. and uh, He was giving me a funny look, but he gave me an even weirder look when he saw me smiling at him and, and eyeballing him. Um, so, But I was obviously going through this message in my head as I was walking around. And I wondered at that festival, where were these people going for their protection, their security? And rather than being afraid, rather than being, you shouldn't be doing this, I can feel it now. I had this sense, God is so for those people. Oh my goodness, there are thousands of people willing to go to anything and anyone. There's another guy with an umbrella that said free spiritual healing. I think Christians might have a message to these people that works and brings life and wholeness and truth and Freedom where what they're doing just doesn't. So next year, if you've got a free Saturday, go down there and pray in your head. Have a few beers. Pray in your head, grab some food, and see what happens. Romans 8 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You know what the distinctive thing about, about me and anybody who was a Christian at that fair yesterday was Jesus. We live in the same places, we eat the same food, we work in the same offices, we walk the same streets. I was probably drinking the same beer as some of these people. We have the same life events, we have the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, whether we're Christian or not. The distinctive thing when it comes to God being our protector is always Jesus, who we cannot eternally be separated from when we're in Christ Jesus. And that's a, a flipping promise, if you're going to come under any. We have a message, and it works. The third one is this. Christian faith is shown when we believe God's word. Jumping down to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came, uh, came to him, came to Abraham. This man will not be your heir, referring to a trusted member of Abraham's, Abraham's household at this point. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, God said to him, So shall be, so shall your offspring be. One person writes this God sets up a reminder for Abraham and all future generations of a promise that God has made and will not renounce. God did this with Noah and the rainbow. But now God does it with Abraham and the stars. God makes an altar of remembrance out of the stars. Remember the promises of what it means to be a person of faith. We talk about promises quite a lot here, but do you have the equivalent of an altar of remembrance that will daily remind you of his promises for you? Or do we sometimes eat the same food, walk the same streets, live in the same places, drink the same beer, and it really doesn't make a difference whether we're a Christian or not? Or are we standing and walking in the promises? Am I standing and walking in the promises? Jesus is the distinctive thing. goes on, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. His response to God's promise was one of trust. Abraham trusts the goodness of the promises of God, even in spite of all the evidence being otherwise at this moment in time. His wife is barren and they're wanderers with no land, which is a big deal. But he believes the word of the Lord. The faith of Abraham, Abraham turns into Abraham, is certain of one point. There is a future to be given which will be new and not derived from the present barrenness. He believes that God can cause a breakpoint between the exhausted present and the buoyant future. God can cause a breakpoint between the exhausted present and the buoyant future because of Jesus. And it's written that the Lord credits it to him as righteousness. The right legal standing with God that brings right relational standing with God. And Paul in Romans 4 and 5, you've probably read it, is at pains to point out that Abraham here is justified by faith. It's his faith that meant it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not as a payment for work. It's his faith. Abraham was believing in God's promise of a son for new life for his people. And so too, we also receive new life by believing in God's promise through his son, Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. So don't allow fear to control your life. Rely on God's protection. Believe God's word. Who here is doing that perfectly? Come on, anyone brave? (laughs) And that response is exactly why the final part of this slightly bizarre um, passage is really important. Uh, God promises a lot. He makes a covenant. Uh, And the thing that makes all this doable is the fact that God makes this covenant. And a covenant is a binding, permanent agreement with Abraham to seal all these promises that he's made. And all the promises above have no standing, really, without this last part. In Abraham's mind, he needed the covenant to know that it was sealed. This is how it goes. Let's read it again. It's a little bit weird, but we may as well, because it's the Bible. I am the Lord. This is from verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So God, at this point, basically says, "Okay." goes on, verse 8 onwards. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. That's very kind of him, isn't it? Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham, Abraham drove them away. And these were words that Abraham had been longing to hear. He had heard the promise, but now he would have a covenant. In common with most of us, Abraham needed some kind of material sign, some kind of material evidence for these spiritual truths that were going on. And in the Bible, covenants are always confirmed and represented in the external physical world through the shedding of blood. Without understanding this, this all seems very, very weird. And it's the kind of passage you don't really want to touch, really. Um, but in the ancient Near East, covenants between two equal parties were established by cutting several animals in two. That's what they'd do. I um, can't imagine it was pleasant, but that's where the phrase cutting a covenant came from. Uh, the two halves were laid upon either side of a walkway. So you can have half of it over there. You can have half of it along there. there you go, If you want to use your imagination. Um, both parties would then pass in between the animal parts. One person said this was a very, very serious handshake, if you like. It seems very, very serious. But in their passing through, the people were announcing, if I break my word, let what happened to those animals occur to me. So it's a very, very serious handshake. It was bloody, it was gritty, and it was quite sobering for anybody who was about to make an agreement with another party. But the crazy thing about Abraham's covenant, Abraham's covenant here, is that Abraham never passed through the half-animals. He never passed through them. If you read through, he never passed through them. Instead of baiting Abraham into a bad deal, God did the most selfless thing possible. And God walked through The animals alone, taking on both sides of the covenant. In fact, Abraham was asleep at the time, just to show that it's not by works whatsoever. He was fast asleep observing what God was doing. God had nothing to gain, but he had everything to give. God established a one sided covenant. No strings attached, no hidden agenda. The entire deal was to benefit the people he created and who he loved so dearly. You and I and all who would believe. You and I and all who would believe. And our fate is not determined by our inability to enact our side of the covenant. It's not works. God fulfills both sides for us. And it's grace upon grace upon grace. 2,000 years after this incident in Genesis 15, it's a time we call Good Friday, when God in the person of his son Jesus, we know the story, hung on a cross alone. Not us and him, just Jesus alone. And he said, it is being done to me I'm going to take all your broken promises, your whole broken life, and I'm going to allow my body to be cut apart to save you. Pure grace. And no one here is disqualified. Even if you don't have a clue what I'm on about, you're not disqualified. also that we can be righteous in right relationship with our heavenly father again it points to the new covenant this thing in genesis this covenant in genesis points to the new covenant jesus would one one day make for us in his blood so the story of the gospel and i'm coming in to a conclusion here the story of the gospel is not about you and me it's about god and what he has done God walked through the cut-up animals alone. Abraham was asleep. The gospel is not about our good stuff, our bad stuff. It's not about our past, our present, or our future, or our good intentions, because the gospel is not about you and me. It's about God and what God has done by himself on the cross. Christian faith does not look at ourselves. Christian faith looks at Jesus Christ and receives the grace and the mercy and the love. He is by far the greater part of the covenant from the beginning. But it's not just that. He takes our side too. We bring nothing and get everything. And that's grace. People at Strawberry Fair... They bring nothing and can get everything. And they're looking for it in every place possible. And Jesus, through the cross, has made it available to everybody. I was overwhelmed by that as I walked through. It's for each of us, and it's for each of everybody. The reason we can trust God with our lives and don't have to fear losing control is because the covenant he has made in his blood. The reason we trust God for our protection and know he'll never leave us or forsake us is because of the covenant he has made in his blood. The reason we can trust him at his word is because of the covenant he has made in his blood. And the reason we can receive grace despite the fact we do repeatedly get it wrong and don't live in what he's won for us and we forget the reason we can receive grace is because of the covenant he has made in his blood. So today, we can take a step into this. And all we say is, I believe your promises, Lord and what you've done. He is and has been pursuing you for your whole life. That's why we've called this God Pursues. I thought I'd get to that word at some point right at the end. There we go. It's all about believing God and receiving his grace. We can always cry out for help. We can always admit failure. God's grace comes with no strings attached. He is good, perfect, loving, and utterly committed unconditionally to you and I. Shall we pray? And then I'll hand over to Chris. Thank you, Lord, for good news, that it's not about us and our efforts and our facades, religious facades at times, religious smiles on a Sunday, trying to make it look like we've got it all together. It's not about trying to prove ourselves to others, to you or anyone else. When it comes to telling anyone else about this, it's not our work, it's your work. So Lord, lift off where we've done it ourselves. And may we each, whether we've been a Christian for 100 years or are in church for the first time, may we all receive that word of grace this morning. Amen.